Welcome to Episode 5 of Disrupting Your Business. I'm your host, Stephen Burns. Today I'll be speaking with Leslie Shiner. Leslie's an author, speaker, and coach with more than 25 years' experience as a financial and management consultant. She's the owner of the Shiner Group, a consulting firm providing top-level financial and management consulting for the construction industry and helps businesses maximize profits and gain financial control. As a business coach, she's worked with both small and large businesses to help them better understand their business practices and maximize their profits. One of the hallmarks of Leslie's philosophy is that she believes training and education is instrumental in the growth and success of any business. To aid in that front, she is the author of numerous publications, including her most popular publication, A Simple Guide to Turning a Profit as a Contractor. Leslie's postgraduate education focused on finance and accounting and culminated in an MBA from UC Berkeley. And while I won't hold that against her, I've frequently seen her at a variety of industry conferences where she is constantly amongst the most highly rated speakers because of her amazing ability to make financial management interesting, understandable, and even entertaining. Speaking of understanding and entertaining, these are the things we cover in our discussion. Leslie shares a bit of her history and how she found her way into this rather unique specialty. We wander into a discussion about starting a business and the phases of growth that most business owners find themselves moving through. We move on to succession planning and some options business owners find themselves presented with at the tail end of their careers. Leslie also brings up an interesting point about the importance of taking vacations as it relates actually to the business and not to the individual's personal needs. And that is something that was pretty enlightening to me. I hope you find that uh, equally interesting. We spend some time talking about specifics inside the general contracting business, and I actually found this rather interesting since I was a practicing architect for more than 20 years and always had a particular perspective about how GCs operate it, and she basically gave it uh, me an education on what it's like from the view directly from the general contractor side. We also touch on the concept of the imposter syndrome and personal failures. So without further ado, let's get right into my discussion uh, with Leslie Shiner. Oh, I can talk forever. I know <laughs> that. That's, that's why I like this. Thank you and welcome, Leslie, for joining me on Disrupting Your Business. Um, before we dive in, I thought you might uh, want to take a minute or two and share with our listeners a bit about yourself, your background, and what you're up to these days. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. I've been doing this consulting for, let's just say, over 25 years, and I somewhat fell into it. I started out actually going to school and getting an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I was going to be a special ed teacher. And then I thought, I don't want to do that yet. So I started working and started getting into the business world and getting into the accounting department and understanding accounting. And just found it fascinating. Uh, went back to school, got my MBA from uh, the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, and started working actually while I was in school with a contractor. And this contractor purchased a software package. I told him it was a waste of money, but he bought it anyway. And so I started learning it and realized it was actually a really good product. 
And I started realizing that I understood that product so I could help other contractors with the same product. At the time, this was called Master Builder, mm-hmm. which was then bought by Intuit, which was then bought by Sage. And so I started doing consulting, and I actually started my business doing consulting in two industries. I worked in the nonprofit industry and in construction. As I often joke, they're very same, very similar. <laughs> There's a difference between nonprofit and not profitable. Right, <laughs> right. right. Um, and then uh, this was before QuickBooks came out. I actually was a QuickIn expert. I uh, loved it for the nonprofits. Uh, and, and then ultimately QuickBooks came out and I started consulting both with this Sage product and with, uh, uh, the QuickBooks product for contractors. So I, I dropped the nonprofit version of my business and, uh, got more into working with contractors and working with small to mid range contractors, which I just really enjoy working in that business and working with contractors who don't really understand the business part of their business, don't realize how important it is to run the business by the numbers instead of their gut, and help them grow their business to be able to uh, reach a larger size if that's what they want, or uh, more make it more profitable. So that profit isn't by accident, which quite often for construction it is, but profit is more uh, a, a planned idea and that they work toward improving profitability. So. I, I've worked with contractors for the last 25 years, really enjoy that space, uh, and really have also enjoyed teaching. So I teach contractors. I go to most of the trade shows that are related to construction, such as the World of Concrete, the Remodeling Show, Journal like the JLC Construction Show, Deck Expo, things like that, and work mostly with uh, them in terms of teaching these classes to really teach them about profitability and teach them how to run their business by the numbers. So that's really what excites me is helping them understand uh, that that profit isn't an accidental thing, but it can be planned and it can be worked toward and be able to use that. So I try and uh, make it understandable, which many accountants can't do with their clients. I try and make it as understandable as possible. And that's how I ended up writing my book. Yeah, a simple guide to turning a profit as a contractor. I was wondering about that because I think you wrote that maybe ten years ago. Have you found a need to update it, or or have you in fact updated it because maybe there's changes in the technology uh, or business practices, or do you think that the the uh, the principles you speak about in your book apply today in our uh, uh, you know? They transcend any changes in the business practice that we see going on today? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because I really work mostly with contractors, but I work with companies that need to job cost. So I ended up working in the systems integration world. Uh, some people call it home technologists, home theater, structured wiring, those companies. Mm-hmm. And I've sat down to try and redo it for that industry. It's been difficult and I, you know, it, it's uh, time consuming. So that's been on the back burner, and, and every so often I think, okay, I'm, I'm going to do that. But the concepts in the book, the reason I wrote the book, we wrote it as a business fable. Um, we wrote this book about a guy, it's a remodeler, who gets his tax return, and he owes a bunch of money, and he asks his bookkeeper if there's any money in the bank, and she says no, and he asks that age-old question, how can I owe money to the IRS when I have no money in my checking account? And so we wrote it as a as a easy read 
it's a story. You want to find out about this guy. Um, his name is Mike, and he's got a bookkeeper who's a little bit surly uh, and protective, and he's got a project manager who doesn't get along with the bookkeeper. So we wrote it more as a story, but including helping him. Uh, oh, when then he figures out he needs to hire a consultant, he hires this wonderful woman named Hope, and she comes in and teaches him about his business about understanding things like markup and margin and how to price your jobs and how to manage change orders and how to get the reporting that you need and how to create a budget. And so it's, it's, uh, for many contractors that I've heard, it's an easy read. I didn't want to create a textbook and I didn't want to create a book that an owner would buy a contractor would buy and hand off to his bookkeeper and say, this is for you. So it's not written for the bookkeeper. It was written for the business owner right. so that he could read through it and, and, and in as easy language as possible, really understand the concepts that can be quite complicated, uh, but make it fun and interesting. Right. Well, with the description of Mike, the business owner and the surly bookkeeper, I was thinking that's pure nonfiction, and then you introduce hope, and hope, and she, the way she brings the firm around, that's definitely fiction for sure. So the book's still available. Um, I saw it on Amazon, so I guess that's probably where your sales come through. Is it doing pretty well? Uh, yes, it, re it really does. It does very well. And, you know, that the, it's exciting. I, have, I get emails all the time from somebody who goes, I'm Mike, yeah. or... I, that's my bookkeeper, or I, I have a project manager just like that. So it really was taking, uh, I wrote it with my co-author, Melanie Hodgden, who we just took all of our experiences uh, with uh, contractors that we've worked with. And it was just, it was a fun exercise. And in fact, we took turns writing and rereading it. I, I don't remember what she wrote versus what I wrote, because we just think so much alike. So it was a really, a really fun exercise. And if she hadn't pushed me and I hadn't pushed her, we never probably would have done it. Sure. I mean, that's the great thing about collaboration. And I just was also wondering, since you deal with contractors in the construction industry, is there a common background or education? Uh, I mean, have any have, have these typically been people who started a contracting business after college, or do they come straight out of maybe high school and just, you know, uh, start building and then evolve it into a business? What's the typical background of one of your clients? Well, you know, I always ask at these conferences that I teach at, I said, so how many of you did a market research survey and then you went and did a, a client funding study and did a business plan to decide uh, what you wanted to do? Or did you work for a guy and you thought he's i got to figure out what my language is here, but he's not a nice person and I could do better than him and so I can do it myself. And almost every contractor that I've worked with started out in the field, which in many ways in many ways is good because they understand the the field work, but in many cases holds them back because they don't understand the business. And in fact, one of my most successful contractors that I worked with and started many, many years ago, and he actually he's retired now. He sold his business to his partner, but he started out. Um, not as a contractor. He started out with a degree in business and he took his business in a fairly short period of time from a million dollars in sales being the sort of average to 10 million to now a $20 million remodeler, which is in, in the remodeling industry, there are not a lot of remodelers at that $20 million level in production and in commercial and other places. But a home, a high end remodeler is not quite often that large. And he took his business and I'm I'm sure the reason that he took his business that far and that fast is 
both he had built the structure first before it blossomed. And the second is that when there was a problem in the field, he would send somebody out instead of dropping everything and going out and fixing it himself. And that's because this person clearly understood business as opposed to, it seems like, the the typical uh, contractor who has a love for construction and building, putting things together with their hands and haven't made the transition to you know, like the, the Michael Gerber's e-myth, right? To running right. a business, not being, you know, in right. business. Well, and they, you know, and, and they secretly miss the field. And mm-hmm. so the opportunity to go run out and fix something is quite often a draw as opposed to sitting down and doing their least favorite activity, like reviewing budgets or creating proposals or estimates. So it's it's really working with contractors and helping them understand the business side of it, since I'm not going to teach them how to do it from the technical side, they're going to they're going to be able to do that, but be able to help them understand why the business side is so important. So I remember talking to you before. I think one of the important uh, papers you once had read was the 1983 Harvard Business Review on five stages of small business growth. Uh, was that you who had mentioned it to me? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is. Yes. So, so you know, I'm just curious. Do you think? Do you think most contractors like to stay in stages one or two uh, just because that's the exciting? In one hand, that's you started this business, you know, it got exciting. You're in existence stage and uh, it maybe is like living on the edge a little bit more and they enjoy that. Or do you think they really want to move towards a um, – uh, you know, a successful stage and kind of stay there humming in the, in the middle and, you know, never really want to take their business big because when it goes big, it, it's, it's such a different animal and they just love what they do so much that they don't want to make it into a business. It's more of a lifestyle business. I guess maybe I'm going to sum it up as saying, if you don't, if you don't make it through all five stages, would you rather stay, do the, most of them want to stay in the middle as a nice lifestyle business? Well, and I, I always tell them, you have to decide, you know, there's nothing wrong with a lifestyle business. And if it's a lifestyle business that supports you, then, then that's fine. But too often, they want to have increased profits and there's so many contractors out there where their project managers make more than they do. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, I, I, I know I went to UC Berkeley and, and I've, I've since fought that uh, urge. I actually have decided that profit is a good thing. And so they want to have profits and I want to help them have profits. And the only way to have profits is to get out of that existence stage one and survival stage two and get into the success stage and then start creating a process around creating a business that can be sustainable. So do you, do you also talk to them about uh, succession planning? <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, I'm just off to Accountex to teach a class on su- succession planning. And um, I break it down to them with the difference between a continuation strategy and a liquidation strategy. Um, and... There's nothing wrong with either one. It depends on whether or not you're building a personality-based business. If you have a construction company and everybody comes to you and you're the main salesperson, then there's probably no way you're going to be able to sell a portion or any of your business because you've built a business around your own personality. 
as opposed to if you build a business around a process, then you have the possibility of having an exit strategy that can create income after you leave. Absolutely. I, now, I, again, I, I teach also, you know, with the liquidation strategy, if you can make enough income and use corporate wealth to build personal wealth, you can then go out and invest in real estate or, or in, you know, invest in anything. And basically you're taking a company and making it as profitable as possible, taking those profits and building your retirement that way. It's not that a liquidation strategy means you're just going to walk away and have nothing. It's that you're creating a, a plan for the future. Yeah. So, so it seems like it's natural for uh, a contractor to find uh, ways to diversify their business through uh, development work and having assets that can continue passive, you know, give them some passive income. But when they build the company up, your point really, what I understand is, is you, you shouldn't be an indispensable person in the firm. If something happens to you, you know, the company should be able to survive without you. And uh, that's also a reason why it would have value to somebody else is you've created something of value to other people. And whether it's employees who want to buy you out, you know, over a period of years, maybe, or another contracting company wants to take over. But it shouldn't, I've always thought it should never be about an individual. There are, I mean, I'm an architect, you know, by training. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, we call starchitects, you know, these people who are cream of the crop, you know, they're, they're very dramatic, and they have PR agencies, and it's all about them. And I always wonder what's going to happen when they are no longer there, who's going to take over and are, the value kind of just dissipates when they leave the office. I didn't, didn't know if that kind of problem occurred in contracting world because uh, it's a little more, it's a little quieter. No, it does. And it does in terms of the relationships the owners have with their clients. Um, that's why I always tell them, if you want to build a good business, you need to take a two week vacation and make it possibly three and not check in every day on email. Because if you're gone for a couple of days, nobody does anything. Well, let's just wait till the boss gets back and then we'll figure out what to do. But if you're gone and you're not available for two or preferably three weeks, then everybody has to step up to the plate and they have to realize that this is a business. It has to keep going just because the boss is out of town. Oh, you see, you're too nice. It, you have to be gone for at least four weeks. You have to get through a billing <laughs> cycle and a, right. and a pay cycle to make sure that the, the invoices went out. The invoices were paid, the employees were paid, bills were paid, and two weeks, eh, people could let that ride for two weeks. I tell them, take a month off. And when we say take time off, it doesn't mean answering emails every night when you're on vacation. Oh, you know, that's and... not possible. It's <laughs> difficult. It's doable. Okay. As you know, uh, this podcast is really attempting to look at innovative ideas that kind of are introduced into businesses, uh, or firms uh, that have created some disruption. Either it creates it to, you know, the business itself, or maybe an entire industry has been disrupted, for better or for worse. And I was wondering if you've ever had the opportunity, with all of the consulting that you've done um, for quite a few decades now, to see any businesses that were impacted by either their own disruptive event or they were blindsided by something that's affected their industry. And construction has got a lot of industries associated with it. Yes, it has a lot of industries. It has a lot of dis disruption, you know, from not just technology, but code changes, material specifications, new materials, 
all of thing, these things mean contractors really have to be on their toes to be aware of, of how the business of building has changed over the years. When you start getting into technology, it certainly has changed a lot, particularly with the advent of the cloud, with the ability to have, say, cloud portals, so subcontractors, clients, everybody can see the same information, and to be able to utilize that to its fullest extent. What I find is if you look at that technology hump or that scale, contractors are almost always at the end. There's a, a study on um, – J.B. Knowles puts out a study every year and talks about what software do you use, which I'm always fascinated with. And what software do people – you do contractors use for estimating and scheduling and proposals and uh, all of the work that they do? And typically I hear uh, – you know, see on this chart – software that I know about, but almost always at the top is Excel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's amazing to me that there's all these products out there that can really help companies. And they always quite often go back to, yeah, but it's so much easier to do it in Excel. And so I, I think that most small contractors are still in the dark, but they are moving toward being able to utilize the cloud technologies that they really wanted to see. The, the problem is, and I've seen this pendulum swing back and forth, when we first came out with software, it was going to do everything and, and did everything kind of but not well. And then we went back to now we're going to get software that talks to each other and we're going to get one software that does something really well and talks to another one that does something really well. So you've got integration between a scheduling and an estimating and a change order management and production management software. Um, and there are products out there, and they are changing the world for many contractors. The bigger contractors are more embracing that. The smaller ones don't really have the time or the energy or desire to make that sort of change. And so I, I just find that sometimes you're dragging them. I, I did a talk about the five stages of grief, and I, and I uh, talked about the five stages of moving to the cloud and the the denial i'm not going to do it and the anger you can't make me you know and then final acceptance of okay i got to get into this century and start start being able to utilize the tools that that are there for me yeah i i'm not even sure you should get me started on this whole thing about <laughs> excel uh, i've said this before but to me excel which is a marvelous tool is maybe like the the fax machine it was a marvelous tool when it came around. It, it, it solved some really interesting problems, but it didn't go away. It, it, it hung around way too long. And uh, I, I, I think Excel was a great tool in its day, but when you tell me that a con you know, these maybe smaller contractors don't want to get involved in these new technologies, it's just not worth their time, uh, and Excel is the great tool, that's the inefficiency right then and the, right there. The Excel spreadsheet itself is inefficient, whereas solutions that are you know, built uh, around solving problems and are... Uh, and you would think, you'd think that the builder would really appreciate putting in a system. You know, uh, just the, the process of constructing things is all about systems and organization, and it's like a, a dance. It's like a it's like a, a piece of music. And Excel is everything that's that's not because you have to constantly go back and manually do things. 
and it's fraught with human error. And once you finish an Excel spreadsheet, you got to go do it again the next month or the next week or the next project. You're always going back to it and doing things manually. So I see you got me started. I'm, 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 I get very angry because I loved Excel, as so many people do, because you could think of something and you could do it. But if you just embrace a system, it doesn't matter almost sometimes which software tool it is. As long as it's a tool uh, that has a purpose and you work inside of its framework, you're going to find yourself um, having uh, the benefits of structure in a, in a company. So, Well, yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. I mean, I agree. And I have lots of companies that work with different software products. The thing that amazes me, though, is, I mean, I shouldn't say that it amazes me, is that when you work with a contractor and they want a particular report and, and it's not in there or you have to customize it or create it, they're like, well, isn't that the report that everybody wants? And you're yeah. like, no, this is the report that you want. The report that everybody wants doesn't exist. And so, yes, they, they are often looking at, you know, I, I always try and teach them to look at similarities instead of differences. When you sit down and you're going to create a proposal for a client, there are similarities in how everything is built. But, you know, remodelers are artisans and they, they like to be artistic and, be, and like to, to start over at each one. So I do spend a lot of time trying to find a fit that would be something that they could utilize and be able to create a process. If, if you can spend the time and the energy to work with an estimating program, no matter what the program is, the first one will take 10 times longer than doing it in Excel, the second one faster, the third, and then by the time you get into making that commitment, then you can start popping out those estimates very quickly. In fact, there are, there are estimate, estimate writing programs in the uh, systems integrators world that have received much more um, acceptance in that business realm than in in remodeling. Yeah, you are right. To the the first few times working with it, you're going to lose some efficiencies. Uh, I remember we changed our CAD software at my architectural firm, and everybody was all up in arms because we were all very comfortable doing things the way we do how. And if some, you had to get a drawing out, you know, by the end of the day, using something that you didn't have to think about, it was, you know, it was an innate thing that you knew how to build, you know, build in that, in that software. Then somebody says, you, you know, use this new software. You're like completely frustrated because it's going to take you twice or three times as long to do it because you have to think about not just the thing you're drawing, but how to even draw it. So, problem is, is you really ought to take away their old tools, take, take away that old software, <laughs> let them suffer for, uh, you know, a, a, a week or two or three, you know, give them the training that they need to really get their head wrapped around this product. And then after that few, you know, weeks, all of a sudden they are at the same level they were before. And then they start having those new efficiencies because they're using a better product uh, that's, uh, you know, just designed for the future, whereas they were using an older product before. But yeah, that a lot of people are not happy about that transition because uh, they don't like being, you know, performing less uh, efficiently as they used to. Well, plus, plus they don't plan ahead. So, uh, you know, we all procrastinate. And if I have an estimate that is due or an RFP that has to be due by a certain date, you know, that date looms out there. And then just like mm -hmm. you did in third grade, the night before you start working on it. So they don't have the luxury of 
being able to say, okay, I'm going to commit to spending twice as long or three times as long to do this because they're constantly chasing that proposal and, and not committing the time that it really takes. And yeah, I do agree that maybe, you know, you take away their tool for a while or you at least get them to uh, uh, do start small and realize the benefit of it mm-hmm. and then ultimately be able to utilize those tools. I agree with that, except I wouldn't take away their tool for a while. I'm br- brutal. I would take away their tool forever. <laughs> so so uh, do you actually have, though, uh, and if you don't, that's fine, too. But do you have any sort of war stories of any companies you've worked with who have self-imposed disruption like that, who've actually worked with you to maybe put a put a software product in or, or some systems in or change the way they run their business that completely changed how they did their business and they struggled? Maybe they struggled and came out of that better, or maybe they didn't, didn't make it and gave up, gave up on it. Is there any experience you had there? Well, the, the contractor that I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that jumped from a million to 10 million, which was rare, uh, in, in the industry is one that committed to creating a system and he had an office manager who created a, a process. So, you know, they created an identical binder for every job and these are all manual sort of processors, processes, which have now, cause this was a while ago, been replicated, uh, online or, or uh, either in the cloud or at least uh, technology-wise. So if, if they're willing to make that commitment, it does pay off. I, I had another guy who you know, didn't know what he wanted to do. He hired me. He paid me a retainer. I came in and I started working with him, and he wouldn't do anything I said. And he kept asking the same question, you know, why doesn't this work? And it's like, because you haven't created the process. And ultimately, I, I thought this would help him. I gave him back his money. I said, if you're not going to do the things that I recommend, then I can't help you. And I thought that would make him turn around and go, oh, okay, come back. <laughs> but it didn't. I don't care. And he's out of business. So, you know, that's, that's his problem is that he just wasn't able to make the change the changes that he needed to make, he knew he needed to make them. He, he asked me the same question over and over again, and I gave him the same answer over and over again. It's the consultant's dilemma. Uh, although, on one hand, if they don't, if they don't enact your suggestions and uh, something bad happens, you feel like, great, you know, if he'd taken my suggestions. But if he, if he takes your suggestions and something, have you ever had that where people, people said, you know, I'm going to listen to Leslie. She's really given this some great thoughts. She's got these great ideas. Let's go apply them. And then all hell breaks loose. Not to say that you wouldn't give great suggestions, but we all know, come on, it's, it's just some people can't, uh, right. can't absorb this for a variety of reasons. I did have someone who took my suggestions, misinterpret them, and then said, okay, I'm going to do it this way because that's what Leslie told me to do. And I said, ah, it's not quite the way I, I mentioned it. So it was a misinterpretation. But um, it, it's interesting about how companies get from point A to point B. And in my career, I've had the ability, I actually worked at Master Builder, which, as I mentioned, then got bought out at uh, by Intuit. So I, I worked there for a, for a bit. And it was fascinating to be an employee again. Uh, I prefer not to, so I prefer to own my own business. But I tried it out for a while thinking uh, that might be an interesting uh, path. Uh, and when I worked at Master Builder, it was a tiny little software company. And, and it was 
it was like a jackrabbit in terms of it would go, let's try this. Okay, now that doesn't work. Let's try that. Okay, now that doesn't work. Let's try this. And they were zigzagging from point A to point B. And then I went and I worked it into it. And into it would say, well, let's think about doing this. And then let's do a focus group and a market research survey. And they would go very slowly on a straight line from point A to B. And I often refer to them as the snail. So it was sort of the, the comparing a snail to a jackrabbit. What I found is quite often they both got to point B at, the, at, at about the same time and the same sort of conclusion, but they had two different methods. And so I think technology is like that in terms of companies and being disruptive and trying something new as opposed to studying it and analyzing it and, and, and going incredibly slowly to try and get from point A to point B. Because you're dealing in construction, do and in the it sounds like more of your clients are uh, residential builders. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Home uh, yes, I'm, they're they're residential builders. I also have others. So since I you know since I specialize in job costing, mm-hmm. um, I have these systems integrators. But I also have some production builders. And I've worked with um, some of the large AGC contractors. Right. Uh, so it's, it's really run the gamut. So when it, let's talk about job costing because you mentioned that a couple times now. And these, the, the, the advent of BIM technologies, which I guess you're going to be familiar with, building information yes. modeling, has one of its side effects is co- uh, cost uh, analysis of structures of buildings. So, are you seeing builders that you work with using the BIM model to do project estimating, or uh, is that still not adopted yet? Um, it still has not been adopted yet by the smaller contractors. I know larger ones have done that, but the uh, or the large commercial contractors have done that. But I haven't seen that being adopted. But I have seen. Uh, you know, companies that are really focusing on figuring out how much something costs and then doing it for that same cost. That's the whole goal. And uh, I always say, you know, imagine how rich contractors would be if you only had to do the first 80 percent of every job. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> because because uh, <laughs> that's where they uh, they sort of lose focus and lose track. And so um, I I actually did an on-site consulting with a company. And a gentleman, uh, the project man, and the company was not doing well. And, the, and I sat down with the project manager and I said, and he was in charge of all of the projects. I'm like, what reports do you get? What do you need? What do you need to do your job better? And I was really trying to have, say, you know, how can we help you? And he looked at me and he leaned back on his chair and he said, lady, he called me lady, not a good start. Uh, he goes, lady, you know, a job costs what it costs. Mm-hmm. And so he's no longer at that company because, uh, he didn't care about budgets. He didn't. He just wanted to do the job, and that wasn't really what that company needed. And then they discovered that's why the company was in such trouble. Is that when the you know when the people that are doing the work think that it's an unlimited budget, then they you know then the company's not going to be able to uh, make a profit or at least have happy customers. Yeah, it's an interesting problem too because uh, they don't procure everything. Um, at the start of a project, and I've seen in my in my career uh, the cost of products just skyrocket from when we did a pricing exercise, and then something happens uh, either uh, due to manufacturing or politics or taxes, right. uh, or there's a um, 
shortage of a material, a resource, and by the time you're ready to buy it, it's you know either not available at all or it's two times as expensive as it used to be when you did the pricing. Uh, is do, do do builders work in with in some? Do they always put a cushion in for uh, eventualities like that, or is, do they have a science now where they're able to track this? Uh, you know, looking into the future at uh, you know. Chinese tariffs and anticipate right. Yeah, some some builders actually put in price escalation clauses in their contracts, um, and other builders. It depends on the economy. I've seen because we lived through two thousand eight, nine, and ten um, to now, where where companies are very busy. I continue to remind them that they need to just raise their prices, and if they don't get the job, it means it opened them up to do more profitable work. I always ask them, "Do you want to work?" 10% more and make 10% more money? Or do you want to work the same amount of, that you're working now and still make 10% more money? So it, it depends on how desperate they are. Mm-hmm. And even when they're desperate, I try and talk them out down from the roof and say you just are down from the ledge. You cannot just desperately take work. So you, I, I try and, and teach them you know, how to determine whether something is doable or not doable and how to make use of those uh, unknowns and how to plan for the unknowns and how to work with your client with those unknowns, particularly things like price escalation or unforeseen circumstances on the job right. uh, or any of those things that really are important. I, I wrote uh, several articles about change orders, and I always say with change orders, you know, you're probably doing the work anyway. You might as well get paid for it. So helping them understand the changes, you don't even have to charge for it, but at least document it so that you can start charging for it at future times. So for my old architectural firm, we often looked at the change order as the builder's opportunity to make up lost ground. And he uh, or she would recognize that this is something that has to happen, this change has to happen, and therefore they can uh, gouge a little bit more. Uh, because they did bad work. You know, you're talking about the 80%. You know, let's just do 80% and right. walk away because we're going to lose most of our money to the last 20%. So they were doing fine in the beginning, and then things got, uh, got somehow out of control. And the change order was their way of being saved. So just curious if uh, that's a, if that's something that is taught to contractors, how to uh, <laughs> use the change order as a means of getting back on, on, it pro, pro, you know, on, track. on track. Is that... What it really no, was? Uh, it's not. Although we do say that you don't have to charge the same markup on the change orders as you do on the job, but what what I've been trying to work with the contractors and help them is to when they're doing change orders is to really understand the cost of all of that change because there's additional project management and additional supervision and that they typically don't charge for. I ask them to take a look at their books and say. Which jobs are more profitable, the one that had a lot of change orders or the one that had very few? And I'm not saying that the change orders are the place to gouge the client, but they're a place where you can really work to the scope. And maybe the architect wasn't really good at writing the scope, or maybe the specifications weren't very good, or there were unforeseen circumstances, or you have a client who keeps changing his or her mind about what they want to do. And it's really more of a process of tracking it mm-hmm. and tracking that extra work and then working with the client as to how much you want to charge for that. But no, I don't think it's 
yes, we're losing money on the job. Now we're going to start change orders. I think possibly why that comes about is in the beginning of the job, when everybody's all happy and friendly, then there's a whole bunch of changes. The contractor doesn't even bother to say anything. Oh, we'll just do that. And oh, we'll just mm -hmm. do that until they start losing money. Whereas if in the very beginning, as soon as there's a change order, they can say, we'll just do that, but I'm going to document it. I'm going to show it to you and I'm going to show you what it would have cost and right. I may or may not charge for it. Everything needs to be documented, all those things. So yes, uh, yeah, I agree there. I also agree with you, by the way, that uh, what you charge for that should be different. When I speak to architects, I really encourage them when, it, when you're involved in a change order, if you are billing hourly, it needs to be at a higher hourly rate because there's, there's much more risk involved with a change that oftentimes you don't even see uh, until a little later. You might think what you're doing is innocent enough that you know the client says, "Let's just make this change here." You say, "Fine, you know it'll take us you know six hours. We'll take care of it. We'll distribute the drawings." But then somebody didn't think it through all the way and realized, "Oh my gosh, that also impacted how we were going to take the you know the the, the chimney that suddenly has to go in front of a window and we forgot that and the window was framed out and it has to be moved and we didn't know right. that and it's, you know, all these little cascading effects and then you've got to spend more time you know just researching everything and so it seems fair to uh you're going to take on more risk you should uh be paid more for that for that risk well and that and that also gets back to technology and and trying to get the uh, clients to start having your field employees fill out mobile apps and give be be very descriptive instead of waiting until monday morning at the coffee shop filling out a paper time card and the more information you can get from the field right then and there the better off a contractor is. And that's that has, I think, finally been accepted in the mm -hmm. construction world. And, and more, uh, uh, more often than not, there is a mobile component to that so that that information is getting back to the office. So the, the field is not just working in a silo, literally or figuratively, but they're not just you know out there working on their own doing what they want, that there is better communication. Sure. So the use of mobile apps and the use of, as I mentioned earlier, client portals and that sort of thing, I think has really helped contractors get a better understanding of the whole picture of the job as it's moving forward. Agreed there. I wanted to change our track for a second here. So I started my first company when I was 33 years old. And I remember joking with some people a few years later that if I had known how much it was going to cost to open my business, I actually never would have done it. And then maybe it was you know, nice to be a little bit naive. Um, so I was really kind of saying that I'm really grateful for, for my ignorance. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken that leap. So having spent the bulk of your career consulting, um, and I know most of our listeners are in professional services, I'm curious if when you look back at when you started your career, uh, was there something that you wish you had known when you were starting out uh, and you know had you known that you might have be you know having done, done things differently or be in a different place right now or do you think the trajectory you went was you know just just right and you wouldn't have benefited by having a certain knowledge you know that's that's an interesting question i i i when i first started out it just came to me so easily i thought well gosh this is so easy why doesn't everybody do this um, and it's, it's really having a better understanding of the value that I bring to companies. It took me many years to, to just sort of discover that. Um, and, and I think that, I don't know if you've ever heard of the imposter syndrome. Mm, no. 
where high achieving people will quite often think that uh, all of their successes are due to a fluke and not due to their own uh, innate abilities or hard work. And therefore, they always feel like they're an imposter. And I've, I suffered from that for many years. And uh, Is that I, like fake re- it till you make it? Is yeah, it related yeah, to except, well, it's somewhat, but it's basically, uh, and it's typically, um, it's, a, it's a study that was done, it's, it's from high achievers, but the more success you have, the more you're afraid somebody's going to figure out you have no idea what you're doing. And I, I uh, uh, was working with a mentor and I was heading off to a, a site visit with a client and I said, I'm really worried about this one. And he said, why? And I said, because I think this is the time they're going to figure out I really don't know what I'm doing because I had that fear for a very long time. And he said, look, you've been doing this for so many years. You should by now know that you do know what you're doing. And I said, no, I've been doing this for so many years. My odds increase every year I do this that I'm going to get found out. (laughs) And uh, so I I think that really being able to step back and plan what you're doing and look at the value that you can bring has been uh, something that has taken me a really long time to get to. Um, I've had, you know, we all have failures and setbacks. I remember working on a computer and seeing the blue screen of death at the time. I think it was green, um, you know, and, and that kind of failure sticks with sticks with me. And I think if, if I would sort of give myself advice, I would say, look, you know what, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to fail at certain things. And you want to look at that as a learning opportunity, embrace that, and be able to move forward and be better from that. Our CEO is really very fond of that Dalai Lama saying, which is when you lose, don't lose the lesson, right? So right. that sounds like what, what you were really talking about is, you know, like, like no great accomplishment comes without some failure along the way, right? And you have to be... You know, like all entrepreneurs have had failure after failure before they've had their successes. And I think that uh, some business people just get so uh, dismayed by, you know, that that thing that went wrong, that failure, that they're a failure. And then uh, they just don't get out of that. Uh, Instead, they they need to say, why did it fail? And what are we going to do next time to make to make sure that 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 doesn't happen? So kind of dust yourself off. So it sounded like you were just giving me a story of a, a really how, how people need to take their failures and uh, move on, move forward. And I think that's a great lesson for everybody. Well, I think you learn, you learn more in many cases from a failure than a success. And so keeping that in mind and not beating yourself up too badly uh, to be able to then say, okay, that's going to be a, a lesson learned and let's move forward. Right. But you know how you said earlier that sometimes you – when you are successful, you feel sometimes as the imposter and right. you can't, you know, you, what do you attribute that success to? So as long as you can look at the failure and, you know, deconstruct that failure and are willing to invest in understanding those mistakes, then I think you're going to be be great. But if you don't truly understand what made a success, then you probably won't truly understand what made that failure either. So either way, I think people need to analyze analyze their business successes and mistakes similarly. Right. Uh, Agreed. I've got two children, and I'm always amazed at what you can learn from your children. (laughs) Hopefully you two have have had this. I mean, they're they're like not just better looking, they're faster, but they're a lot smarter than than at least I am. And so my son recently shared with me a, a, a paper he was writing, 
uh, he's 25 now, but he, he thinks about some interesting things. And it was about education and learning. And it, it, it's an interesting problem today because so many people are, you know, they go through the normal education path of, you know, high school onto college, uh, you know, onto grad school, you know, higher education. But today with technology, we have, you know, these massive, on, you know, open online learning classes. I mean, pretty much uh, since you're in the building industry, I used to always call the plumber and the electrician. Now I've got videos at my beck and call on YouTube to figure out how I can, you know, the other day I took apart my dishwasher, which I never would have thought of doing wow. before, right? And I got a video that took me step by step to figure out why it wasn't draining properly. So there's so much we have available uh, about uh, learning things that previously used to be, you know, you have to call the plumber to get that problem fixed. Uh, I was just curious um, what you think about how people get their information today and how they learn. Has it changed? Because it used to be you had to be taught by going to a class, getting educated online. Uh, getting a consultant in to look at your business. Has any of that impacted you? Well, certainly it has. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I applaud you for using uh, YouTube to figure out how to fix your dishwasher. I typically go to YouTube to figure out I should call a plumber because <laughs> <laughs> it's beyond my skills, although sometimes I have fixed some stuff off of there. But uh, you know, the, the ability to have remote meetings has really opened up the world. Uh, and the ability to be able to uh, take the information and then, you know, as a consultant, I don't want to be teaching the same thing over and over and over again. I want to be doing something new and interesting to me as well as to my clients. So I want them to get the education first. I want them to go online and, and I will send them off to different uh, uh, there's a lot of different learning opportunities so that then they can come back to me and we can talk about what they learned and talk about, you know, how they can apply it to their business. There's still always a personal uh, component to that, but it's, I think, more personal and also more beneficial and more cost effective to the business owner. We have a lot of um, talk in the in the media about the the bubble that we're in, uh, not, not the real estate bubble, that kind of thing, but the the information bubble where we have social media, for example, uh, news media that keep feeding us information that we're, we're willing and interested in reading. And therefore, we don't expose ourselves to challenging ideas. Uh, and so we live in that bubble. And you just read and hear and talk about the things that you're interested in. And I, I work hard personally to expose myself to things outside my domain uh, that uh, maybe I can learn from and even bring into the domain. I, I, it's like, as an example, I remember reading years ago when Apple created the, the Apple Store and everybody in the media was completely you know, apoplectic that they would even – think that anybody cared about an Apple product back then, you know, long before, you know, Apple sales were in the, in the, in the toilet back then and iPhones hadn't existed yet when they were doing the store. And then that story, I don't know whether it's true or not, how Stephen Jobs really took, took uh, the concept of the concierge, I think it was at the Ritz Hotel, right? And he just loved the Ritz Hotels and the concierge and how they always knew who he was and who you are and what you're interested in. And they would make sure everything was taken care of for you and you didn't have to, to work hard. And he applied that to the, you know, became the genius bar at the store. And that an idea like that would not have happened. Or maybe even go back farther and, you know, that famous story about 
Jobs taking a calligraphy course, right, which is what eventually supposedly led to the creation of, you know, Apple Computer and, uh, you know, the WYSIWYG environment and all. So I'm just curious, are there things that you, Leslie Shiner, you know, that you're reading, you're, you're listening to, things that are outside of the normal business uh, domain that you, you know, you live and you know, work in right now that you find is bringing you insights that might help you in how you even think about business? So, so I sort of have two answers to that. One is that you brought up Steve Jobs and Apple, and I do want to tell you an interesting Apple story because I worked in the 80s, uh, early 80s, in a, for a company called Hambrick and Quist, which is an investment banking firm, and it brought two companies public that I was involved with. One was Genentech and the other was Apple, and it was a fascinating time to be in downtown San Francisco. And I actually was on the team that did due diligence for Apple, talking to vendors and suppliers and being in meetings with Steve Jobs. And at the time, we had a tour of their plant, speaking of failures, and we got to see, Sign and NDR got to see their new product coming out. It was the first Apple product with a mouse. Do you know what the name of that product was? Not the Lisa, is it? It was the Lisa. Okay. It was the Lisa. And it failed miserably, uh, and it failed for, for several different reasons. But the interesting thing was that uh, in this, this meeting, Steve Jobs said that unless work is fun, I'm not going to be here anymore. And, of course, within a couple of years, he wasn't. And then after several years, he was back. Uh, but it is interesting when you're looking at the different failures that Apple just hasn't had this meteor. People think it had a meteor, meteoric rise to the top. There have been many failures along the way. And yet, you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about them. We think about our Apple Watch and our iPhone, and it did revolutionize. But I remember him talking about how the Lisa was going to revolutionize business processing. And, and that didn't happen. So uh, when you brought that up, I just wanted to tell you that story because I thought that was fascinating because of the excitement that everybody uh, had and the predictions for this Lisa computer that most people haven't even heard of anymore. Yeah, well, Apple was there, but, you know, the Newton came out, you know, right. three right. decades before an iPhone came out. And it was, you know, supposed to transform things, but the, we weren't ready for it. People were, Right. Well, and the, and the mouse was developed by 3M mm -hmm. uh, and we weren't ready for it. So, yes, people have to be ready for that. But but that's sort of off topic. And you had asked me a question and I'm trying to remember. Well, what I, the... I wanted to know about uh, your interests outside <laughs> oh, in, of business. Outside. So. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you can go down the YouTube hole, rabbit hole and all of a sudden, 45 minutes later, you think I've just wasted 45 minutes. But what I try and do is go down the TED Talk YouTube, sure. uh, TED Talk hole. And I use TED Talk a lot. I, I use TED Talk to open me up to different ideas, to see what other people are saying. Um, not necessarily the inspirational ones, but I, I just find that you can get different ideas from different people. Mm -hmm on TED Talks. And, and I just like that because I don't want to be stuck on Facebook where you're just your friends telling you the same stuff over and over. And we're so politically divided. I don't want to fall into that trap. So I, I like you, agree. I had a fabulous conversation with um, a, a gentleman about socialism versus capitalism. And we didn't fight. We didn't call each other buttheads. Uh, but we actually, I got to understand his idea and I got to, and he got to understand my idea and we had different views, but it was such a great discussion. It reminded me that we, we can still do that. And that's what I try to do is find people with differing, differing views and where we having a conversation where we're not going to just lean into, yeah, but you're an idiot. You have, you're from Berkeley. So I'm take, I'm going to guess that that person, uh, 
was on the socialist side of things, and even you, you, they were disappointed in you for becoming a capitalist. <laughs> that was that was part of the discussion. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so the apple um, fell far from the tree. The apple fell far you're, from the tree. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I love the TED talks as well. I've gone to a number of TEDx conferences here in Manhattan Beach, uh, and you come, you walk away feeling great that one, there are people who are even thinking about these things that, that they're thinking about, and they're all over the map, right? You know, medical right. issues and you know, political issues and good things. But you, you walk away and you think, huh, that, that thing I just heard about, about how, how, how you can work with uh, people with um, uh, uh, who are paralyzed, you know, spinal problems and how they're actually getting muscle. You know, can, can we apply some of those interesting ideas to what we're doing, which is completely unrelated? So, uh, yeah, I love that they make you think, just anything to make you think differently uh, is really right. helpful. Right. Right. Uh, well, okay, so I want to, uh, again, be cognizant of the time here. Is I don't want to take too much of your time. I, I'd like to ask um, sort of a closing question uh, just uh, about uh, a book or books that you've read uh, that may have changed the trajectory of your life that have really influenced you personally and maybe even professionally. It could, could be either one. Is there a book that you uh, would share with us that you think uh, is really worthy uh, uh, to note? Well, you know, I have my books for pleasure and my books for business. Um, and, and I do use TED Talks to either discover books or to get what I call the cliff note of books, <laughs> because quite often you can get everything from a book uh, listening to a TED Talk. Um, I came across a book uh, by a guy named Sean Aker, A-C-H-O-R, and it was called The uh, Happiness Advantage, The Seven Principles That Fuel Success and Performance at Work. And what I thought was most interesting is his premise was that we sort of have it all backwards, is that you think, okay, I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to become successful, and then once I become successful, then I'm going to be happy, and that that's backwards. Because what success does is it forces you to create goalposts that are further and further away, mm -hmm. and that happiness is actually the precursor to success and not the result of success. And I think I use that in my business and I use that in my personal life. And I think about, you know, success versus happiness and, you know, setting up the goalposts, but being able to um, utilize that information to, you know, make sure that that I'm not just creating unrealistic goals or once I hit the goal and I'm like, OK, boom, now I got to do the next one is to be able to step back and go, yeah, you know what, I'm really happy that was really great and be able to revel in that in that success and be able to be happy about it. So is that different than that you know adage you know uh, follow your passion? It is. It is different um because uh you know following your passion is great if if it can also put food on the table. <laughs> uh if it can't put food on the table it doesn't do any good. You do have to be excited about what you do. So you certainly have to uh, you know, not just take a job for the money, but in, I think it's different in that you want to be able to figure out, I want to be happy. Uh, and I'm going to use that to be able to make decisions on what will make me happy and what will, you know, make me succeed. And that it's not that it's just once I succeed, then I'll finally be happy. And that's the problem with, uh, I think a lot of people creating that path. I created a path many years ago in a job that I hated and I stuck at it, stuck it out for two years so I could get it on my resume so, so I could get into grad school 
and that that was just stupid. And uh, the best thing that ever happened to me is I got I got very ill. I had to leave the job, and that was the best thing that happened to me because I thought I don't know what I'm. Why am I working for a piece a two year piece of paper? So changing, you know, being able to say I'm going to find something that can provide me the satisfaction of what I'm doing and the ability to work with others and all of those things that make me happy and also help me make a good living. That's really creating that, uh, that, that goal. I, I remember, and maybe we once talked about Mike Rowe, uh, from dirty jobs and he had a Ted talk, which I'm pretty sure that's where I heard him talk about the fact that most of the people he meets in the, uh, the show when he, you know, takes on those dirty jobs, these amazing people, they don't have a passion for their job. They didn't wake up one day and said, I'm going to be a, um, a cleaning cess- uh, um, you know, a cesspool. <laughs> that's right. not, but, but that's what they do. And they have, they live very good lives. You know, the work that they do is dirty, but they live these great lives. And part of what I see is too many people are actually identified with the work they do. Their lives are wrapped up in what they do in their business as opposed to looking at their their lives as a, as a, a whole. I remember when I uh, started my firm, I joined a group. Uh, it was called the CEO Network, and you were able to meet um, principals of other architecture firms. And one of the things that the facilitator would do is tell us right at the very front was uh, don't have a business plan first, have a life plan first. So what is it you plan to do with your life? And the business should facilitate that that life plan. And I, I think that too many people in, in the industry that I grew up in, in, in architecture, can't, can't separate their lives from their business. And if they're not successful or there is a failure, they feel like a personal failure. Right. Well, I, you know, that's interesting because that's a very American thing. My daughter married a Welshman and lives in the UK. And, you know, when you meet somebody there, the first question out of your mouth is not, what do you do for a living? And when we meet somebody here at a party, the first question quite often is, well, what do you do? And so it is, I think, a very American thing that you define who you are by what you do, as opposed to defining who you are by what you want or what you enjoy or any of those other things. So, yes, I think it, it is a, a, a problem with the work-life balance. Part of the reason they moved to the U.K. is they like the work-life balance in the U.K. better. You're not expected to be answering emails at 11 o'clock at night and working every Saturday and Sunday. And I think it's so important. We, I do lip service to work-life balance. I did a very bad job of that for many years. And it's something I struggle with on a, on a regular basis. I, yeah, it, it, you are right. It must be an American thing. My wife and I lived in Berlin, Germany for a year and a half after we got married. And we always talk about this, that we met so many people in that year and a half. But no one asked me what I did or hear what she did. They, you know, they asked, like, what are you interested in, you know? Right, right. Uh, to find out about you. And they don't identify you as, you know, because you meet them at night or at some social event. They don't care about what you were doing beforehand. So that's a problem with our country. I wonder if there's a way to change our, our mindset here, but I wouldn't know how that could happen. Maybe you have an answer to that. I, I wish I did. I don't. You know, I... Um... No, I, I just I don't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Unless you want to just well, we can't and be an expat. <laughs> yeah, that was a, there was a, it was a nice time, but uh, it's still nothing better than being an American and living in the United States. It's, it's an extraordinary place we we have here. Yes. Even in the expensive 
great state of California. You are you're up in Mill Valley. Is that where you? I am. I'm ten miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge, so I'm in a, a beautiful area, very expensive. And luckily, I came here many years ago before it was <laughs> before it was out of my price range. Yeah, well, lucky you. And thank you so much for all your time uh, to talk with me today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to yak with you, and uh, uh, and it's it, I learned from it. I think it was uh, a great opportunity. So thank you. Yeah, you know, my pleasure. And by the way, uh, before you go, uh, how could if people want to reach out to you and talk to you more about what you're doing? How would they reach you? Well, you can always reach me through my website, which is uh, www.shinergroup.com. Um, I also am on social media, at Twitter at, at Leslie Shiner, and in Facebook as Leslie Shiner. So luckily I got all of those before any other Leslie Shiner found them. And it's S-H-I-N-E-R for those yes, folks. Yes, it's so, S-H-I-N-E-R. I'll, I'll try to put those in the show notes too. I'll give the links for that. So, uh, And I'll even put a link in there for your, your book. So uh, That would be great. I, I've got more information about the book on my website or on another website called moneymazebooks.com. Okay. Very good. Thanks again, Leslie. Really appreciate your time today.